Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray that you would still our hearts and open them up, clear our minds from all the other stuff that's going on and help us understand to know you more, to know what you're doing in our lives, in our church, in our world. And lift us up, Lord, to your throne of glory to understand, Lord, that despite all the limitless, the the, the limit that we face because of sin, Lord, that you're able to break through and, and speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Enlighten us, Lord, through your word and help us understand. In Jesus' name, Amen. What we need to know from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23 and this is part 6 in our series on the epistle to the Ephesians. So we arrive at the the end of the first chapter Uh, and let's just put this in context by, by saying that when Paul wrote this letter in the early 60s, now we're not talking the 1960s, this is the first 60 in the first century, Christianity was very much in the minority. But it was starting, despite the persecution, despite the death, despite what evil was throwing at it at the church, it was starting to spread rapidly throughout the empire. And as we read these words today, people are still coming to faith in Christ. And that's a wonderful thing. But the great majority of them are, are, are coming to faith in, they are living in troubled areas of our world. And famine and conflict and injustice. And we in the West are, are saying, well, where is God? What, what's he doing? And we're able, we have the luxury to question and to read and to get into philosophy and wonder, is there a God? And, and we're more easily drawn away and distracted by other things, like entertainment and comfort. What will it take for God to break through these hardened hearts that we see all around us? Simply look at the news and you start to get an idea what he does to break through. So we have looked at verses 3 to 14 and marveled at how we have been blessed, we have been chosen, we have been predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, given an inheritance, sealed, delivered. Is that enough? And because of all those truths, Paul now gives thanks in verses 15 to, to 23. Because having set forth the glories of what God has done for us in Christ, Paul's heart is moved to to pray again an an uninterrupted prayer of thanksgiving. He doesn't take a a breather in all of these verses for 15 to 23 in the original language. Not not only, he, he gives thanks not only 
because of what God has done in providing for our salvation in general, but also because Paul has heard some wonderful things about the, the faithfulness of the Ephesians in particular. For Paul, good theology leads to doxology. What is doxology? And doxology is an expression of praise to God. Your hearts are suddenly lifted up, praising. As someone said, put it in simpler terms, a mind filled with truth directs a heart full of praise. A mind filled with truth directs a heart full of praise. So let's get into our text this morning. First of all, giving thanks in in verses 15 to 16. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you, in my prayers. Word has got to him, even though he's, he's in prison, word has got to him the great news about the Ephesians. He built the church, he founded the church, and how wonderful it is that despite the fact that he's not there, it wasn't about the pastor, it wasn't about the, you know, all the attention gone to him, he's no longer there, but they've moved on. They, 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 in fact, they, they're thriving in their faith. And this is the way it's supposed to work. It's not about personalities. The news drives him to his knees in thanksgiving to God. So when Paul says, for this reason, he's referring back to everything he has said up to this point. He prays that the things that they have come to know their election, their redemption, and the presence of the Holy Spirit and in, in, in the application of that work may be realised in their Christian experience. That it doesn't just remain some theoretical thing that they believe. And two things draw his attention, their faith and their love. Their faith and their love. One of the signs of a true Christian is that he loves other true Christians. See, it is easy to say, isn't it? It's much harder to do. But if your faith has not resulted in you becoming a more loving person, then I have to question whether it is a genuine faith. Paul, you can't say that. Well, I can, because that's what the Bible says. Faith is not merely an intellectual acceptance. It has to have legs. It has to have arms. You cannot just recite a creed. It has to be real. It has to be fleshed out in your life. Truth known never changes anybody. It is truth done. Truth which has flowed through the 
emotions and, and, and grip your heart and, and motivate your will to do something about it. Remember how James, he stresses this very point. He says in James 2.17, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is what? Is dead. Is dead. That's what he's, the Word of God says. And he says, well, you guys say you believe. Well, <laughs> congratulations. Even the demons believe. And they're actually scared. They shut up. So we should pray before every time we read the Bible. And I hope it's an experience that you, something that you do every day. We should pray before reading the Bible. Something simple like, Lord, show me yourself through these words. Speak to me. And now, you know, you suddenly see the news and say, well, is this World War Three? Is this what's happening? You know, earthquakes and all that stuff. And, no, don't open the Bible just for that. This is not merely a book where you learn about prophecy or, or, or even how to behave morally. Am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to fool around? No, <laughs> you're missing the point again because that just leads to legalism. It, yes, it is. This stuff is there. It's, it's all over the place. But there is much more. It, it, it is there to lead us to the presence of a living God. To feel Him, to know Him, to sense His love, His wisdom, His strength, His might, His control of human events, His guidance. And to enable us to understand, to make sense of these things. So that we don't despair. So that we don't lose hope. Someone has said that there are three steps in the life with God. Step number one is the finding of the Saviour. Step number two is learning the facts about our salvation. Step number three is the experiencing of the salvation with which we have come to possess in Christ. Many believers, unfortunately, struggle to get beyond the first stage of finding the Saviour. It's called the milk. That's all you can drink. And that's you're comfortable just continually drinking Milk. You don't want to move on to the meaty stuff. Because you see them, because it's, it's okay. You've got your ticket. You, you know you're going to heaven. Or that's what you, you've been told. That's the most important things. So don't worry too much about the rest. You know, just... It's okay. But we know this is wrong. 
the greater part of the Bible is not about how we have come to know Christ, but about how the life, what the life should look like, the life of a Christian after we have come to know Christ, after we have a relationship with God, this is what it means. Paul, so Paul, having given thanks for the evidence of their faith and their love, now he's rejoicing, he's filled with praise and now proceeds from thanksgiving, he proceeds to petition in his prayer for his beloved Ephesians. He draws upon some of the blessings that he's already mentioned and now he proceeds to pray about four, four very important things. You can slice and dice this passage in many different ways, but I've tried to just contain it into, into one sermon. So this is why I'm going to give you four points. First of all, that they might know God. Verse 17. I keep asking that the Lord God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. For what? So that you may know him better. Do you get that? So that you may know him better. He doesn't say, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of philosophy or the knowledge of science or the knowledge of human history. They all have their merit. All these different studies that people devote themselves to. And it's something that we desire for our children and ourselves in education, you know, getting certificates and diplomas and degrees and masters and PhDs. It's increasing our knowledge. It's all good, but it is not the most important thing. Yes, we study all of God's creation and God's creation involves everything. We study the laws that he puts into motion to run our world. We measure it. We measure distances and weights and try and, through reason and logic, try and get it, gain some understanding. Yes, we do all that, but the most significant thing is the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. It's really sad. It's really sad when man only knows science and history, philosophy, and he doesn't know Christ. People that study this stuff devote themselves to this. It's, the evidence is screaming at them. It, it, it's right there. It's, it's wonderful design and such a perfect balance of, of, of the way that he has created the world. It's, it's screaming. It's, it's loud. They can see it. Yet they still come out of it claiming there is no God for us to know. 
As a result, he knows a lot of facts, but he's not able to put it all together and turn it into truth. He doesn't know. He he, there are all these different facts, but how it fits together in all of this, well, so he goes in this direction, he goes in that direction. That's why the world is seeking, constantly asking and searching for answers. But they don't want to know the one truth that matters. And in 2 Timothy 3.7, Paul describes it pretty well. He says, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Right there, right? He's got it right there. Always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And it's very sad. I know some people like that and you do too. I hope that you are not one of them. But Paul... He had tremendous amount of knowledge already up to the point, up to the road to Damascus when in the person of Jesus Christ he was confronted and his life changed. And this event created a hunger that kept him growing and growing and wanting to know more and more and more hungry. And and he desired the same not only for himself, he desired the same for us so that we can know God better. And this is what he said to the Philippians in Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. But Paul, I thought you already knew. You've written all these letters. You've written all these epistles. I thought you had it all worked out. And he still says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. And he was certainly doing that as well. But every time he was beaten... Every time he was locked up, every time he was suffering, oh, there's something else I didn't know. And now I've learnt. And that's how he kept growing. That they might know God. That's the first thing. Secondly, that they, his prayer is that they might know God's calling. First part of verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Now, let's just make it clear that the word hope in the Bible does not mean, I hope so. It doesn't mean, oh, we're going to have a a baptism on the 20th of, of March and we hope it's not going to rain. That's not what hope in the Bible uh, means, Okay. In the scriptures, it carries with it the assurance for a future. The assurance. <coughs> There's a story of a, of a pastor and, and his deacon who were visiting a prospective member who had moved into the, into the area. So they drive up this beautiful suburban home surrounded by big lawns and Gorgeous landscaping. Two very expensive cars are in the driveway. And that's just, you know, tentatively sort of wondering to garnish enough, you know, courage to knock on the door. They, they peer through the window and could see their prospect sitting comfortably 
on a chair and relaxing next to a fireplace. Very comfortable. And the deacon turns to his pastor and said, Now, what kind of good news do we have for him? That's a good question, right? What good news do we have for him? Oh, okay. Right, you want to tell me about Jesus. Is that right? Well, what would I need him? As, as, as we try to reach people with the gospel, we ask, what type of hope can we bring to a person who's already convinced that all of his hopes and dreams are in this world? What could heaven possibly give him that, does it, that he doesn't already have here on earth? Well, maybe the only time he will listen is when those things start to wobble or even taken from him. On a personal level, it could be his health, his riches, his family, the stuff that happened to Job, right? On a societal level, it could be the loss of freedom. Suddenly we lose our democracy. Suddenly all the freedoms that we enjoy, that we could go anywhere we wanted to. And, and, and suddenly we, we see the drums of war beating again. It's sad. But it, many times it's only when these and other things are removed that people pay attention to the eternal hope. Romans 8.24 For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? The call of God takes us back. The call of God takes us back to the beginning of our Christian lives. As we have said previously, we, we called on him to save us, but the call was already only in response to his calling in us even before the creation of the world. So then the question becomes, what did he call us for? He called us to something, and he calls us for something. He called us to belong to Christ. He called us to be holy. He called us into his own kingdom and glory. It was... Nothing more and nothing less than a call to a new life. A new life, a new creation. That's a big call. That's a big call. Thirdly, thirdly, that they might know God's riches. Verse, the second part of verse 18. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. 
The late uh, newspaper baron and publisher William Randolph Hearst invested a, a fortune collecting art treasures from around the world. That's what they do. They've got everything else. Start collecting art. So one day, uh, Mr. Hurst found a description of some valuable item that he felt he must own. He had to have it. So he sent his agent abroad to find them. <coughs> and after months of searching, the agent re- reported that he finally found the treasures. Where were they? They were in Mr. Hurst's warehouse. You see, Hurst had been searching frantically for treasures he already owned. He would have saved himself some money and trouble if he simply read the catalogue of his treasures in his possession. I can relate to that a little bit. Oh, I need this tool. It's there somewhere in my garage. It's easy just going to Bunnings rather than trying to find it. So I just... And then once you buy it, sure enough, you find it. It's there. I mean, I've got two of them. So we have already spoken about the inexhaustible treasures in Christ. Paul already catalogued them for us in the earlier verses, right? That's what he's done. But here he's not referring to our riches in Christ but his, God's inheritance in us. And and this is an amazing truth that you need to get your head around, that God should look upon us as part of his great wealth. He has catalogued us. It's part of his treasure. Just as man's wealth brings glory, brings some glory to his name, So God will get glory from his bride, his church. Why? Because he has invested so much in us. So much. The the church, you see, is, is often mocked and ridiculed, even by Christians. And many times we, we need to stand back and see, yes, a lot of the criticism is probably deserved. But let's just stand back a little bit and say, Hang on a tick. You're talking here about the bride of Christ, okay? It's like somebody saying nasty things about your wife. Just be careful, please. And yes, it's flaws all too apparent because you and I, why, is it, why are there no perfect churches? Well, let me tell you why, because you and I are part of it. That's where the problem starts. Churches would be perfect if there weren't any people in it. (laughs) But you see, God deals with us on the basis of our future. As hard as it is to imagine. God deals with us on the basis of our future, not on our past. And one day... His bride will be presented, and he talks about that in later chapters, right? Will be presented beautiful before him. This is what he said. Will be presented, Ephesians 5, 27, to himself as a radiant church 
Get this, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Doesn't look like it now, does it? But that is God's wonderful promise. Fourthly, that they might know God's power, verses 19 to 23. We can split these verses and and get a lot deeper into it, but let's just take it as one chunk, that they might know God's power. And in verse 19 he starts by saying, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is, that is invoked, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed everything under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Quite a lot to unpack there. So you can see how Martin Lloyd-Jones spent more than 35 sermons just on Ephesians chapter 1, right? Like I said, I'm not that good. But let's get a glimpse of it, that the cross is the ultimate display of God's love and God's justice. In his death, Jesus redeemed us from our sins and it is only through his blood that our sins are forgiven. We got that. But a dead redeemer is no redeemer at all. What's the point? This is why we need a resurrection. And we see the working of of God's great might when God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That is God's power. So the centre point of redemptive history is is the, the act of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus' resurrection marks the the dawn of a new creation. That is the turning point when God begins to undo all the effects of sin from Genesis chapter 3 and the road to recovery starts at the resurrection. His resurrection defines how we as Christians are to to view not just our lives but the balance of human history. This is not where it ends. From from the moment that Jesus was raised until our own resurrection at the end of the age, this is how we are to view things, that it's, it's there, it's in his hand, it's looking at us, it's staring at us. We see the news of Shane Warne dying and, and sort of saying, wow, how I wish he was a Christian. So much talent, so much fame and riches. And yet without God, as far as I know, it's all for what? And yet for us, the believer that nobody knows about or heard about, it could be the poorest of the poor living in a slum somewhere, yet he believes in God 
He's richer than the richest person that you maybe even desire to be because he has everything in Christ. And, and the thing is that the, the same resurrection power, what Paul is telling us, the same resurrection power that raised up Jesus from the dead, because all of the, all of the forces of evil, Satan and his cronies and everyone, they were trying to keep Jesus buried, stuck there. The spiritual realm was really interested in, in, in that Jesus remained dead. But no, the power of God raised up Jesus from the dead. And that same power is at work in every single believer. We, ta- we, we have that at our disposal. How do I know this? David wrote, King David wrote, Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this describes perfectly what, what Jesus is presently doing. Unless, and, and unless it was revealed by God, a thousand years before Christ, David wrote this. But David couldn't possibly understand the full implication of what he was writing, unless it was revealed by God. But Paul knows, and you and I know, the implication of it. In the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, God rules over his enemies and his people. So this forces us to ask a question. If Jesus has all authority now, why is there still so much evil and suffering in the world? The answer takes us to a study in eschatology. Eschatology from the Greek eschatos, which means last, deals with expectations of the end of the present age, history and the world itself. That's what eschatology has to deal with. There's a lot of it in the Bible. So these words that the Apostle Paul gives us here, that not only in the present age, but also in the one to come, describe two different eschatological ages. <coughs> Throughout the Bible, this age always refers to this time, this, this world, the things, the material things that are destined to perish, including us. Paul calls it the evil age in Galatians. But then there's the age to come. But this is the present age and we normally think that that's the age to come. No, it's actually overlapping. So the present age and the age to come, the moment you die, you already go beyond present time. You are already in eternity in the age to come. The reason for the present evil and suffering is that somehow, in some way, this is part of God's purpose. 
this is, I know, this is more difficult to accept than it is to understand. That God permits these horrible things to happen because in some way they serve his eternal purpose. Now there's a challenge for your theology. This is not to say in any sense that God is the author of evil. He is not. The Bible is clear on this. But it is to say that since Jesus is in heaven with all authority and dominion, head over all things, whatever happens, good or evil, is part of God's purpose and does not occur outside of Christ's control nor plan. He puts limits. Just like when Satan came before him to talk about Job. God put limits. God put limits. So the resurrection of Jesus marks the beginning, the beginning of the age to come. So we could say in our earthly years, at least that there is a 2,000 year overlap between the present age and the age to come. Therefore, even though we live in this present age, one day this present age will give way to eternity. And as Christians, we live in the reality of these two ages. We have the blessings of the already, but must await the glories of the not yet. While our inheritance will come at the end of the age, we live our lives in hope, knowing that God has decreed that everything we do in this life has meaning and purpose. And we all await that glorious day when Jesus returns to judge the world, to raise the dead and bring about the new heaven and the new earth. Finally, you might have noticed that for a few years now there has been a lot of talk of uh, climate change and renewable fuels and the, the need to conserve and preserve energy, to look for alternative energy sources, clean energy, blah, blah, blah. And then power shortages and so on and so forth. Nowadays, as you pull up to the servos, you see the prices of petrol higher and higher because of the conflict in Europe. And you sort of get an idea that there's a bit of a power crisis going on. But I think that the greatest power crisis is actually in the life of the Christian. For example, in the book of Acts, we see the resurrection of power of Jesus displayed in the lives of ordinary men and women who gave everything to follow Jesus, irrespective of the cost. And look what happened. Just read the book of Acts. In the same way, in many parts of the world, many believers, despite not having much in this world, have the power of God displayed in their lives. And what do we need to do? We need to tap into his 
incomparably great power, the Apostle Paul says. Incomparably great power. The words that are used in this passage are the words for, for energy, for dynamite. They're all in the original Greek. There's four different words that he uses for the word for power. And he says, you guys need to tap on that. When you get fueled up, make sure it's full tank. Don't run on empty. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck on the road somewhere. And if you're stuck in your Christian faith and you haven't seen any progress, perhaps it's because... You haven't tapped on it. And there is, obviously, there is, there is no excuse for us to be lacking in Christ's power. It's there available for us. So if our Lord, if our Lord fills everything in every way, then surely at the very least one application of that, the implication of those wonderful words is that There is no excuse to be running on empty. We need to tap into that. And then Habakkuk 2.14. Let me leave you with these words. Habakkuk 2.14. Not just our lives, but we want to see the whole earth filled. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We know what, when there's a lot of water, what happens, right? What if we could see the glory of God filling our communities, our churches, our lives, our families, our world with his glory? And we know, in hope, we know that this is going to happen. But we don't have to wait till then. We already can tap into God's power, be filled up with the Spirit, and live the lives that he has called us to live. Amen.